According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're here for the purpose of growth. Once again, turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, a very dangerous chapter. We've turned here several times already, and every time you look at Luke 12, your eye kind of is drawn over to verse 48 which is the famous, to whom much is given shall much be required. And uh, every time you look at that, you go, oh my goodness, we are in trouble. He has given us more than believers of any previous stewardship. And within our stewardship, he has given this generation more than any other generation. And so we have uh, responsibility to live up to that. Well, we're not quite to verse 48 yet. We are still dealing with verses 13 through 21. Actually, this is our first look at verses 13 through 21. How about that? We uh, wrapped up down through verse 12 last week, and we're ready for a new episode here this morning, point seven in the outline. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and make sure that each one of us is filled with the Holy Spirit, that distractions are set aside, and that we are humble under the authority of God's Word to receive our instruction today. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth, for the grace that you extend to each one of us day by day, and just the privilege we have to be able to study the living and abiding Word of God. Thank you for making it available to us, for making it available abundantly through uh, the freedom we have to assemble together and receive instruction, the uh, resources that are available in software and in print materials. The fact when uh, if, if something grabs our attention and we want to uh, read more about it, we can uh, very quickly in a few clicks and keystrokes, we can have a book sent to our house. And it's uh, just a real, uh, a real blessing. And I just want to thank you for providing it and uh, ask that you might continue to grant these freedoms and keep us diligent to present ourselves approved before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, guide our study this morning. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Good news in terms of... I haven't given him a name yet. That's my new buddy. Um, it's a bee bird. Yeah, bee catcher, they call that. I never heard of that until I saw this picture. From Hungary. What I was doing, I was actually looking for hungry pictures. If you can imagine such a thing. And as I was searching for hungry pictures, I found that. And he looked hungry. So anyway, the uh, website is back. And so we're very thankful for uh, all the work that Cliff has done and others that have done to uh, get us migrated over off of the previous server onto the new server. And so we have uh, online studies and audio lessons and recent classes and all the MP3 files are there. It took... Almost a week. I mean, it took six days of sending file after file after file after file to get the hundreds of uh, MP3 files that we have up there. So they're there. And uh, even up to the PMW class on Sunday night, looks like all four hours of Sunday are there. And we are current, and we're very thankful for that. So as soon as this class is over, a little bit of magic will take place, and the, the very words you're hearing now live will be on the Internet and uh, and available for those that could not be here this morning. 
All right. Get our slideshow up and running. This is episode 13 of the last Judean and Prean ministry. Jesus deals with a whole lot of things, 10 different items to include hypocrisy, covetous worry, and alertness. Uh, as we've been outlining it, we admitted our plagiarism by letting you know that the Outline Bible is where I found the 10-point outline to this chapter. Uh, it does divide this chapter into a decalogue of 10 emphases, and I got to liking it so much I stole it, and that's what I'm using here for this chapter outline. With increased demonic opposition, Jesus launches his teaching ministry into high gear. We've been noticing the acceleration of the conflict, the acceleration of the opposition, and even the increased ugliness of the attacks against him. And uh, he's not backing down. Uh, the, the more serious they get about their opposition, the more serious he gets about Bible teaching. And he's equipping his disciples because the cross is coming closer. He knows, uh, there's no doubt in my mind, that he is now fully aware of the fact that the coming Passover is the Passover. It is his time to go to the cross. And uh, he's preparing his disciples for that departure. Now, we've gone through whole lot of slides already. I'm just going to zip on down here to where I think we are. Let me back up. There we are. Point seven. Yeah, because we covered blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, maintaining confession in the face of persecution. That's right. The verbal plenary instigation. We covered that. So we're, we're current. Here we are now for point seven. The poverty of riches, the fifth emphasis of this chapter. So point seven, if you're keeping the outline, uh, emphasis number five, the poverty of riches. And a very well-known story. In fact, one of my favorite of the parables that Jesus ever delivered is this one right here. I use it in wedding ser uh, services occasionally. I use it uh, when trying to illustrate that if you're temporally minded, living for this world, you may lose out on the real priority and your soul could be required this very evening. Let's look at it. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. In other words, no matter how much you have, that's not your life. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool! This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. All right, now there is so much truth <laughs> to go into. Goodness, where do we start? Well, we back up and start with verse 13 and, and take it line by line and, and work our way through. But this is so vivid and so... Um, amazing you start to wonder did it almost seems like jesus christ was a 21st century american <laughs> pastor teacher instead of a first century jewish prophet uh, because this is our culture living in this world and in the world and for the world 
and accumulating toys. And, and the more you get, the more you need. And, uh, and the different, the failure to, uh, the, the no, there's no capacity to appreciate the blessings when all you are is, is dissatisfied with how little you have. And that's what we'll be uh, examining here in the subpoints. All right, we don't know who this guy was. He's just known as a certain man. Like the certain woman that cried out earlier about uh, how happy his mother's womb and breast must be. Here's another anonymous person shouting out, interrupting Bible class. Uh, and uh, here he's interrupting class to try to get Jesus to rule on his behalf. So subpoint A, a certain man from the crowd interrupted Jesus' Bible class to urge Christ to arbitrate his inheritance. Here's Jesus in the midst of teaching and specifically warning about pride, warning about the Pharisees, warning about um, the persecution that's about to come and that you're going to be dragged before the courts and, and don't worry about what you're going to speak because at that moment the Holy Spirit will work in and through you. And in the middle of Bible class, this guy's going to start shouting out. And it truly is an introduction. Notice... Um, as it goes on, verse 22, the teaching continues. Uh, verse 33, the teaching continues. And he's not stopping his Bible classes. This series of messages is continuing. Uh, just this certain man felt there was a break in the conversation, enough time for him to jump in there and try to get a little influence on his, uh, on his part. His address as teacher is interesting. It's not at all disrespectful, but it is quite a contrast when he says didaskala, teacher. That's the vocative case of didaskalos. And then Jesus answers him with anthropos, with man, in verse 14. Those, uh, those are not insulting terms, but they are, they are formal terms. Uh, similar to when he addresses his mother as woman. There's nothing insulting about it. It's not derogatory, uh, but it is um, polite. It is formal and polite in, uh, in uh, social conversation. His address as teacher, of course, rabbi is the Aramaic term, is an admission of Jesus' role. He, he is addressing Jesus as a rabbi and asking for a rabbinic ruling, asking for him to use his teaching influence to uh, either alter a, a legal document or to, I think what's more likely, is to um, teach in such a way that his brother would be, would be influenced. In other words, um, in all likelihood, not only has this guy been following Jesus around and listening to the different teachings, but his brother may have been following him around listening to the different teachings, and it may be that if uh, Jesus was to have a word with his brother, the older brother would, would uh, listen to what Jesus had to say. It's, it's remarkable, and when Jesus denies that he's even in a position to do such a thing, it's interesting as what gave this man the idea that he can dodge the system, or he can pull strings, or he can somehow curry favor with, uh, with Jesus and let, let a, a prophet overrule a legal document, say. Inheritance, the Jews are not rookies when it comes to inheritance. Is it too bright in here? All right, well, you know. Men love darkness rather than light. For, but uh, okay, no, no, I got you. I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. And besides, you're not men; you're women. So that's uh, that doesn't apply to the verse there I was quoting. All right. 
Well, that's good. That's why we put the blinds up in the first place. That lets us uh, darken the room a bit and take the strain off our eyes. All right. But the idea, uh, you know, that a uh, that an inheritance can be altered like this after the fact. Um, trust me, the Jews are not rookies when it comes to inheritance. It's been a part of their nation. It's been a part of their governance. It's been a part of their law. It's been a part of their faith. It's been a part of their their um, their, their scriptures. Going back to Moses and even prior to that, inheritance is a major feature of Old Testament doctrine, of, of Mosaic law. And the idea that uh, that the established principles can be overruled, the idea that uh, an influential rabbi can just go ahead and alter the terms of, of, a, of a will or testament is just uh, crazy. And yet... Uh, if, if your teacher happens to be God in the flesh, well, maybe he can uh, <laughs> rule on your behalf. See, And it's not unique to just this guy. Later on, James and John are going to start to see if they can manipulate their uh, closeness to Jesus Christ. And they, and her, they get their mom in on the thing, saying, hey, you know, we want, we want to sit on your right and your left when we get to the resurrection, when we get to heaven. And, uh, and that, of course, didn't do James and John any favors between Peter and Andrew and the other twelve, right? So uh, anyway, this is this is interesting, and I think there's a lot to be said for this and developed for this, even in just these first few verses here. Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. What does that have to do with the message of the Lamb of God proclaiming the kingdom of God? Nothing, see. And uh, I think it addresses the issue here on roles, and Jesus is going to shoot him down here in a heartbeat. Point B, Jesus Christ immediately and firmly rejected a role he had not been assigned. He rejects immediately and firmly a role he had not been assigned. He is not a probate judge. <laughs> All right? He is not uh, a mediator. Well, he's a mediator, but not this kind of mediator. Okay? He's the mediator between God and man as he comes to redeem mankind. But he's not an arbitrator of legal documents or, uh, in any respect, uh, exercising kingly authority at this point. Now, conceivably, he, this would be within his realm once he's seated on the throne of David. He could evaluate the legitimacy of a, of a, of a tribe and a clan and their inheritance and so forth. But chances are, the way these things are all spelled out in black and white, the king would just look at him and say, you know, you're stuck. <laughs> you've got the portion you've got. Your older brother has the double portion, and, and you've got what you've got, and and uh, deal with it. Who appointed me? This is one of those rhetorical questions, and the answer is nobody, because this is not my job. This is not my place. Who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And the more I pray about this, the more I look at this, the more I'm considering uh, making this my signature quote on email. Um, it, I think, <laughs> seriously, I believe church-age believers need to wake up and understand what they've been appointed to and what they've not been appointed to. What are we doing here? What's the role of a local church? What's the role of a pastor? What's the role of a church-age believer? What are we here for? All right. And in particular, if, if you encounter or if you have friends that, that are involved in uh, causes or uh, marches or crusades or anything of that nature, uh, I don't um, 
ever dispute people that have, you know, they can participate in political functions all they want. They've got political freedom to do that so far. Okay, <laughs> Those political freedoms may go away at some point. But, but every, every belief, what I'm trying to say, and this is a good day to say it, right, because there's these Tea Party things going on. You know what? As an American, you're free still, for now anyway, to say what you want to say, protest, do what you want to do in, in political life. Okay? If you're motivated and you want to do that, have fun. But don't confuse that. Don't confuse that with what you're mandated to do in your Christian way of life. Don't confuse Christian way of life with temporal life. Don't confuse patriotism with spirituality, okay, and that's uh, such a thing, you know. And I, I've, uh, I've, lo- we've lost church members. We've had families leave because I would not participate in uh, abortion uh, protests and marches and things of that nature. And um, I, I just tell folks, I say, you know what? I, I, when I left the army, I turned in my boots and I haven't marched ever since. <laughs> okay, I don't march. Uh, my Savior didn't march. My Savior didn't protest. My Savior didn't uh, demand uh, political changes in the Roman government. And, uh, and I'm supposed to be an imitator of him. And it's not my position. And it goes back to this verse here. Who appointed me? Who appointed me? Did God assign me the responsibility to reform this pagan world? No. Scripture says this world is passing away along with it its lusts. My responsibility is to shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight voluntarily, not under compulsion. When the chief shepherd appears, I will receive the unfading crown of glory. So this verse is, uh, to me, an amazing pattern that helps us to realize, step back, that's not my role. That's not my job. All right? And you can find, interestingly enough, you can find a variety of ways in which this verse gets applied. Uh, in many, many applications. Um, and and uh, I've already illustrated in a couple of different ways, but there are other ways. If um, someone comes to you and they want you to solve all their problems, is that your job? Okay. Now, you can, by all means, we're studying proclasis. Come alongside, be an encourager, be a comforter. Uh, speak the truth in love. Encourage with Scripture and so forth. Um but if they're if they're saying, well, you know, tell me what to do, you know what? Is it your job to tell them what to do? Be an encourager, remind them of the scriptures, but pray with them that Jesus Christ will tell them what to do. Pray with them that they will come under conviction of the Word of God as to what they need to do. See, and uh, it's, it's kind of been neat over the last week or so. I've been in conversations with the different pastors around the country about. Uh, their philosophy for uh, counseling and their philosophy for church members and someone comes to you with problems and how do you encourage them and how do you teach them and how do you build them up and and so forth or you know a wife shows up dragging her husband along and says pastor you know fix him okay and the <laughs> well let's look at this verse here who appointed me uh <laughs> The, the defective husband repairman in the church kind of a thing okay or the defective wife kind of thing that happens also that's right anyway um not my job not my job my job is to teach the word of god the word of god will do its perfect result it will not return void it will not return void i can't follow people around and make sure they're applying doctrine 
Word of God does that. You teach the Word. The Word is implanted. The Word dwells richly. The Word springs forth. The Word bears fruit. The Word cuts. The Word pierces. It's alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. See, I know a pastor used to say that quite a bit. All right, so he firmly, immediately firmly rejected his role. But then what does he do? He faithfully executes the role that he does have, speaking the truth in love, proclaiming the truth of God's word. So he doesn't rule between brothers. He preaches the word. And in particular, he uses this circumstance to preach against greed. He faithfully executed the role he had been assigned as an Old Testament prophet, as a spirit-anointed prophet of the dispensation of Israel. Remember, he's a prophet, priest, and king, but he's not yet seated on his throne, and uh, his priesthood is not yet engaged until he's hanging on the cross. So he's still functioning as a prophet, functioning as a prophet, and uh, executing his assigned duties flawlessly. All right, Luke twelve fifteen. Then he said to them, Beware. And he said to them, notice, plural, Not just the one troublemaker, but he uses that opportunity to speak to him and everybody else that's listening. He said to them, beware and be on your guard. It's a redundant uh, and repetitive warning. He says, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. We're going to break that verse down into two halves. We'll deal with the warning first, and then we'll deal with the uh, the greed element on it. But this is what he's challenged to do. This is his work assignment. This is his message. And so he's going to be faithful to fulfill his role. All right. Now, the, the bulk of this is going to come in D&E. Let's look at the twin principles. Because there's really two principles that are taught. They're taught, they're given in verse 15, and then they're illustrated in the parable. All right? And uh, the first principle is to beware, and then the second principle is the, uh, to identify with what Zoe life is all about. So they're given in verse 15. Twin principles, verse 15, are taught in the parable, verses 16 through 21. And the Bible is so brilliant. God is so brilliant. In the Bible that he, I mean, you know, the, uh, uh, any, any text can say, um, don't be greedy, right? You know, imagine there's other religions, Hinduism or Buddhism or somebody that has a scripture or a, a holy text somewhere that says don't be greedy. There's probably a proverb of Confucius somewhere that says don't be greedy. Right. But what I love about the scriptures, not only does it give the command, it gives the principle, it gives the revealed mind of Christ and the, and the will of God. But then it goes even beyond that and actually teaches and defines and illustrates through the telling of the story. See, like here, because because someone might come along in later centuries and say, well, what's greedy? Yeah. What do you mean by greedy? How greedy is greedy? And then might want to split hairs. And, and the Bible defines its own terms, defines its own message through the telling of these stories. And so if you have any question about what greedy is about, read the story. That's giving you the definition. See, it, it's, it's similar to uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
Okay, well, okay, I understand that. That's a message, it's a verse. But then you go to Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 and you go, oh, the father who loves his son. And there's a story. And then it unfolds the whole meaning of that love and that sacrifice. And, and everything is told in the, in the narrative, but also in the story. And it's just a, it's a powerful thing. And scripture is so wonderful at this. So twin principles. Principle number one, beware. Beware of every form of greed. Beware of every greed or form of greed. I think quite literally, if you just want to take it as passes planexias, beware of every greed. Because there's financial greed, there's food greed, we call that gluttony, there's sexual greed, we call that lust, there's uh, you know, attention greed, there's all kinds of greed. And you need to beware of all of them. In particular, you need to beware of the greed that uh, maybe you don't even think of as greed. And it sneaks up on you. That's the, the, um, the greed of uh, failure to be content with what God has provided. You know, if you fail to appreciate, then all you're doing is expressing your form of greed. So beware. Two imperatives there would be beware, actually. As I mentioned, it's redundant and repetitive. Horata and Fulasesta. It's given twice. What well, the New American Standard highlights is beware and be on your guard. And then those are wonderful ways to, uh, to translate them. I don't really take issue with the translations. You might get a little bit more vivid with some of the meaning of the text. Horata is different from the, your standard blepeta. Uh, blepeta, coming from blepo, means to look. Okay, Blepo is your basic word to look. And if you're looking out, then you see something. That's okay. But horata is broader than, than that because horao is broader than blepo. Blepo, you just see something. But horao, like where we get the word horizon, okay, now you're seeing with horao, you're seeing the full range of things off in the distance with a broad, you know, wide-angle lens kind of horizon view. So not only are you watching out but you're watching from a distance you're watching from the the horizon level or even beyond the horizon and uh having the big picture of things and then fula sesta from uh fulake or fulaso or uh fool uh fool uh prophylactics come from this the the fulake of uh of a guard of a uh, protection of a uh prevention type of thing but the idea that not only are you watchful, but by being watchful, you're guarding, you're guarding your very soul. It's not only are you alert, but you are protective of yourself because you understand that if you're not alert, you're going to damage yourself in this, in this realm of application. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about greed. We'll look at a handful of passages this morning. It's not by any stretch a full doctrine. The best Passages on greed, though, come out of the Old Testament. They're foundational passages from Proverbs, from wisdom literature, and all the things you'd ever care to know about greed you can get. But uh, anyway, the term planexia from a New Testament perspective, uh, here's a sampling of verses to give us the flavoring on it. Matthew 7.22, in a passage we've already covered in the Sermon on the Mount, should be very familiar. I'm sorry, not Matthew, Mark. Typo. Mark 7.22, not Matthew. How do you get Matthew and Mark mixed up? 
All right, Mark 7.22. And what's interesting is the, um, not only the words and how they're used, but uh, the company they keep. Where do certain sins get uh, lumped together with other sins in listings and things, such as here? Uh, it's not what you eat or eating with unwashed hands and so forth for your defilement. It's what's coming out of your heart. That's a reflection of a defiled heart. And he says, for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries. And, and see, we get this finite thinking that, well, you know, there's certain sins are really, really bad. Murder is really, really bad. And Others, okay, they're not ripe, but they're not as bad, right? Um, you know, some of us may think that capital punishment's appropriate for murderers, rapists, child molesters, and so forth. But you realize uh, even theft here and adultery and fornication, they're in the same list. Mosaic law put the adulterer to death. Try convincing today's politicians to pass that law, right? They'd be signing their own death warrant at that point. Yeah. The point being, though, you get into verse 22, deeds of coveting. That's your greed right there. Deeds of coveting. Wickedness as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Look at that list and see how they are connected. And, uh, you know, pride. <laughs> you know, you get these goody-two-shoes legalistic type of believers. I think they're so great because they've never killed anybody. Well, good for you. You're prideful. You're in the same list as the murderers. How about that? <laughs> All right. Gives you something to think about, doesn't it? Over to Luke. Well, twelve fifteen is our passage. Then uh, Romans one twenty nine. Romans 1. We know what Romans 1 is all about, right? Those are the bad things that bad people do. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, there it is, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. And you see, all of these things are an abandonment of God consciousness. See, murder is an attack on life. God is life. He's a source of life. But even um, all of the rest of these, deceit, God's a God of truth. So the liar is in uh, an abandonment of God consciousness as it relates to God being the God of truth. Every last one of these, greed. Greed in his abandonment of God consciousness from the, from the application of God's role as the provider. God provides. And he provides perfectly. Not one good thing does he withhold from those who love him. Every perfect gift, every good thing bestowed comes down from above. And so when you abandon your God consciousness with respect to what God provides, you, view, uh, you plunge into realms of greed. I need more. I'm not content. I'm not satisfied with what God has provided. And that's the whole uh, element of it. All right, that's Romans 1. Now we have it coming up in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9. Of course, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the uh, section there that deals with grace giving. Deals with the grace mental attitude regarding financial matters in a local church. 
is why Paul always, it was his standing policy, always, always arranged the financial matters ahead of time. Take care of the, the, the administrative details of the financial matters before he even gets into town. He says, I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift. Okay? You know, a, a faith pledge is, is wonderful if it's made by faith and grace and so forth. But you can't take a, a faith pledge made in grace and twist it into a legalistic stick to beat somebody up the head with. Maybe something changed in between. All right, fine. It says between you and the Lord, we're going to arrange it. We're going to take care of things ahead of time. And whatever it is is what it is. It won't be an issue when Paul comes to town. So arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. That's greed. So there's no pressure, external pressure, artificial pressure, phony legalistic influence because, oh, Paul's here and we better, you know, we better put on a, a good show or we better uh, impress him with how much we give to, to, to Paul when he's in town. Nothing artificial about it. Ephesians 4.19 and 5.3. You know, uh, this whole study on greed is, or ought to be, the contrast between your old way of thinking as an unbeliever and your new way of thinking as a believer. And if you uh, lay aside that old way of thinking, then... Uh, it is what it is. Well, the Gentiles and how they walk and the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, and then keep that in your mind because life is coming up and we understand what life is. Life is not your possessions. Well, they don't have this life, so they're wrapped up in their possessions, aren't they? Uh, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of the heart, and they, having become callous, notice, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. See, greed is simply a mindset. But it's a mindset that works very, very well with carnality. Works very, very well with lust, with fornication, with impurity, with anything that's defiling. Um, isn't it amazing that, that unbelievers and believers, anyone that gets involved in sin... Uh, it spirals into deeper and deeper and more and more because it never satisfies anyway. They think it's going to satisfy, and yet they end up plunging into more and more of their uh, of their futility. Next chapter down. Notice, uh, but you do not learn Christ in this way. Spot that. Okay, the Christian way of life must be learned. Your mind must be renewed with doctrinal teaching. Chapter 5, 3, if you're going to be an imitator of God as beloved children and walk in love, it says immorality or impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Three things that not only do you want to avoid the activity, you want to avoid the appearance of the activity. See, where not only, obviously you don't want to get involved in fornication, but avoid situations where even the, the rumors of that could be spoken of against you. Avoid the situation where even the appearances, see, not only are you not doing it, but it can't even be named among you. And that includes fornication, impurity, and greed. Three realms where even an unjust slander 
an untrue accusation can still create an impression or create a uh, a reputation that takes ages to try to overcome or undo or somehow um, get beyond it. So greed is something that we want to avoid, even the appearance of greed. Colossians three five. I like to quote Colossians 3 whenever uh, uh, a baptism uh, recipient is brought up out of the water. And they've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. As a part of that, verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. All of these can become idolatrous objects of worship to where the, um, the uh, pursuit of, of lust, the pursuit of uh, all of these, greed, um, they become your God. They become what controls your thinking. They become what fills your mind. They become what, uh, what you serve, what you obey, what you devote yourself to. And uh, they are not pleasant taskmasters, <laughs> not pleasant gods. They seem to be. They offer the promise, but they enslave you all the more. First Thessalonians 2, 5 and 2 Peter 2, verse 3 and verse 14. The last samples of uh, Pleonexia. First Thessalonians 2, 5. See, this is such a uh, snare and pastors need to be on guard against this. And uh, churches need to be on guard against this. And Paul is able to reassure the Thessalonians that they uh, they were not in it for the money. They weren't there to milk the flock. They weren't there to uh, to take them in. He says, "We never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness." See, there's some high-pressure money guys that uh, that do very well for themselves in uh, in a in financial sense because they know how to uh, flatter they know how to uh puff up the ears and and all of that the last little references here are second peter 2 speaking of these folks uh here they are and these are false teachers that Secretly introduce destructive heresies. The damage they can do to a congregation if they're allowed to do so. Many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. You know, it gives uh, uh, everybody a bad name. When, when the, the big money, high pressure tele-evangelists of this world that uh, uh, get caught doing the things they're doing or get caught exploiting the people they're exploiting and all the things that they do and just... Uh, ruins it for everybody, right? And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. In their greed, they will exploit you. Like a pastor who finds out that uh, a prominent deacon is um, not living the Christian way of life biblically. And uh, he's got uh, he's a married man, but he's got a mistress in another town and all this other stuff going on. And, well, you know, we can't scare them away or say anything to them because then they'll leave the church and we lose a big contributor kind of a thing, right? This is hypothetical, of course, based on 
not this church, okay? <laughs> I'll say that. Um, but true story. True story. And a pastor's got to figure out, is he going to stand for the truth of God's word, or is he going to show favoritism to a guy that uh, needs to be rebuked? And then down to verse 14, same chapter. I think it's interesting. They, um, verse 13 says, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. In other words, their conscience is so seared, they've gone beyond the point where they even care about hiding it anymore. They don't even care about sneaking around uh, after dark or when no one's watching. They're just right out in the open with it. Just right up in the open. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Nothing wrong with that. What are you, a legalist? (laughs) Right? Reveling in the daytime. Stains and blemishes. Reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing, unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. I'm going to give you some subpoints here on this, but greed itself can train the soul. And that's not good. Accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the ways of unrighteousness. And I, we've taught that before too. I'm a big fan of. Uh, Phineas and how he took care of the Balaamism in his day, <laughs> right? Took a spear, went into the tent, got them both with the same spear stroke, and there it was. All right. Greed. So that's the first warning. Principle number one, beware of greed. Greed will train the heart to a terrible end. Greed will train the heart. Greed will train the heart. You know, if you're not transformed by the Word of God, you're going to be conformed by the cosmos. And that training, it's, in, it's interesting. As the heart gets hardened, as, as um, sin patterns get ingrained, you end up with, uh, that's, why, uh, in, that's why in Hebrews we're told about that sin that so easily entangles us. You've got to cast it off. It's, it's, it's very easy to get entangled, to be bound you don't want your heart trained. I think the, um, again, back to the beginning of verse 14, they're having eyes full of adultery. In other words, it's not just something that they think about occasionally. That's all they think about. That's that, that fills their eyes. That's their only thought. It's like the description in the, right before the flood that every thought of the intent of the heart was only on evil continually. That's, uh, that's the total giving over at that point. That never cease from sin. You know, forget First John one nine and confession. They never stop sinning long enough to give a confession of sin or get back into fellowship. And then enticing unstable souls, always wanting to find the next victim and bring somebody else in on the on the process. Greed will train the heart to a terrible end. Subpoint B: Greed works against the heart training that Bible doctrine achieves. Remember what we studied in Psalm one nineteen. That's where your real training needs to take place. That's where the mind can be renewed. That's where the heart can be developed. Psalm 119, verse 36. You're not turning there, are you? You, you memorized that when we taught it, right? Psalm 119. I'm teasing. I didn't memorize it either. I wanted to. Psalm 119. In the hay 
file. Verse 36 says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Seems to me like that's an either or. That's an absolute. That's one or the other. What's it going to be? And you want God to turn your heart to where you hunger, where you thirst, where you desire after the true riches, the riches of his word and not the things of this world. Greed is a trainer. So the first principle is beware. The second principle, Zoe life does not consist of possessions. Zoe life does not consist of possessions. And this is the life that Jesus Christ came to provide, that they may have life, that they may have Zoe, that they may have it abundantly. It's not biological life. It's not bios. It's not your human life. It's not your physical life. It's not your social life. It's not your sex life. It's not your, whatever kind of life do we have, (laughs) right? Your social life. Did I say that already? It's your eternal life. Your life in Christ, Zoe, Z-O-E, Zeta Omega Eta. Zoe life does not consist of possessions. Materialistic humanity, here's your principle, materialistic humanity must reorient to the immaterial. To the immaterial. This kills prosperity theology. I mean, how do you preach prosperity theology? I think you've got to ignore a whole lot of other scripture passages to do that. It's not what you have, because you can have nothing in this earth and have everything in uh, a spiritual capacity. And the other way around as well. You can have everything in earthly wealth and be destitute. That's the, that's the whole point of this parable. This guy had so much wealth, he had to build bigger barns to hold everything. And he was destitute. This night his soul was required, and he was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. According to the Laodicea principle of Revelation chapter 3. That would be a good passage to put on there. I didn't have it on the list. Materialistic humanity must reorient to the immaterial. And this, sadly, I mean, maybe this is kind of obvious to you sitting here this morning, but... There, there are whole segments of Christianity, even if they're not full-scale prosperity theology types, okay? I mean, even if they're not the wholesale name and claim it crowd and, and health, wealth, and prosperity outlook, still, in the back of their mind, in a little way, they got the whole Zophar Bildad Eliphaz mentality that if you're walking right, God will bless you. If you're walking right, uh, he'll, you know, he'll, you'll be comfortable, Say, instead of you'll be content, even if you're content in adversity. See, Paul must not have been walking right when he was uh, (laughs) getting along with humble means. He learned the secret to get along with humble means. I think a lot of folks need to learn that. All right, Job 2.4. This ought to be well known. A little bit of uh, satanic wisdom here. So the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Same question he asked him in chapter 1. For there is no one like him on the earth. 
blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Man, I want to meet Job someday. I'm going to. What a delight that's going to be. He was the historical man of destiny in his generation. He was the believer with maximum spiritual maturity on the planet in his day. And that's amazing since uh, it's conceivable Noah was still alive. Definitely Shem was still alive. And you think, wow. No one like him on the earth. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord. Now notice, I think Satan's on to this. Satan's got an accurate outlook to a point. Okay, Skin for skin, yes. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Satan understands. He's been using possessions to tempt people since Cain and Abel, right? Since Adam and Eve. Uh, He understands humanity's vulnerability to materialistic thinking. But he also understands that beyond materialistic thinking is a self-preservation of soul that when it comes right down to it, immortal man will sacrifice everything to stay alive. So there's a, an interesting outlook there from Satan's perspective on humanity that he will give all that he has for his life. Take that into the Gospels, of course, where Christ talks about the fool who uh, gives all that he has in exchange, or gives up the whole world in exchange for his soul. Anyway, there's uh, Job 2.4. Over to Psalm 37. Psalm 37.16. Materialistic humanity must reorient to the immaterial. Maybe this ought to be an email signature line. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. You know, what are you sacrificing when you abandon the Christian way of life for some earthly advancement? Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Similar statements throughout Proverbs, Proverbs 15, 16. Now, do you think Solomon had any kind of perspective on materialism? <laughs> right? He blew it more than we ever will have capacity to blow it. In a lot of ways. But, uh, again, Proverbs fifteen sixteen: Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Um, it's interesting... Uh, what he learned from his father and then what he failed to apply, even though he knew. You know, that's, isn't that true for most of us? Uh, you think back to your last, uh, you know, two or three major failures. You knew the thing to do. You knew what was right. And you did what was wrong anyway. find that interesting. Uh, chapter sixteen, sixteen. How much better it is to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen above silver. If it's a choice between materialism and the immaterial... The immaterial is what's going to abide forever. The living and abiding Word of God is what's going to abide forever. I say, well, you know, if I move to this town, there's a good church there. If I move to that other town, though, there's a good job there. All right. Make your choice. What's your priority? 
23.4. Proverbs 23.4. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. You know, that's interesting. When you work, are you working? Uh, Proverbs is not anti-work. We're not telling people, you know, don't work or don't make money or don't provide for your family. But the goal is not to get wealthy. The goal is to be obedient, doing what it is that God has for you to do. And if you have food and covering, with ease you should be content. If you have more than that, then God's blessing you abundantly. And this is what's going to get us back to our parable guy in Luke 12. okay? Because he didn't have the capacity to realize what he was supposed to do with his surplus. He had crops that wouldn't fit in his barn. Yeah, they weren't his. At that point, he should give them out, give them away, share. They don't fit in your barn. I bet you they fit in your brother's barn. He, he's got a bit of a shortfall at the moment. You know, why do you insist that it has to go into your barn when you don't even have barns big enough to hold all this grain? Well, see, that's why he needs bigger barns. <laughs> because well, sharing didn't even enter his mind. They can go get their own grain, build their own barns. So, do not weary yourself to gain wealth. You know, um, yes, we're to work, and by the toil of our brow we sweat, and we, and we, the bread, and all the curse of Adam, and all of that, there's a legitimate place for work. This is not rejecting any of that, but it's putting it in perspective. The goal is not to get wealthy. We don't work to get wealthy. There's a, even a follow-up verse there, verse 5. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the heavens. Okay? <laughs> you know, like a investment on Wall Street or something. Where does it go? Ecclesiastes. Here you go. Now, Ecclesiastes, we had a little bit of satanic quotation from Job. Here's some uh, out-of-fellowship quotation. You know, Ecclesiastes is the book of human viewpoint. Ecclesiastes is what Solomon wrote when he started just looking at life with his own wisdom and not orienting to God's Word. And uh, let's see, in chapter 4, that verses 6 through 8, not exactly a paragraph division, but it works. Um, but again, everything is under the sun. Everything is what he's looking at. Everything is his human viewpoint at the world around him. And uh, as he's doing this, you get rather cynical. You know, as far as he's concerned, in verse 2, the dead are the ones that get congratulated. You know, congratulations, you got no more problems. You're dead. Good for you. <laughs> right? Now, how's that for a depressed way of thinking? So he says, um, even better than being dead is the one that never got born. He says in verse uh, 6, One handful of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. Then I looked again at vanity under the sun. There is a certain man without a dependent, having neither a son nor a brother, yet there was no end to all his labor. Indeed, his eyes were not satisfied with riches. This is what we're going to talk about when we get back to our parable guy. 
never had the capacity to appreciate, never had the capacity to be satisfied. No matter how hard he worked, no matter what he stored up, no matter how much wealth he had, none of it was enough. Never satisfied. And for whom am I laboring and depriving myself of pleasure? This too is vanity and it is a grievous task. Next chapter over in chapter 5, verses 10 through 16. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. And see, he's in a position to know. He had more wealth than you and I will ever dream about. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. You know, the working guy who's working day by day, bringing home a paycheck, putting food on the table, feeding his family, he's not all consumed about his net worth. He's got an honest living. He can live with himself. He can rest. But the rich guy... It's interesting. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Again, this is not anti-savings. This is not anti-investment. But this is hoarding to the point where your lack of capacity has you in an Ebenezer Scrooge mode. All right. Where uh, you're not saving. You're hoarding. And you're not prudent. You're enslaved. Because it's being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. That's why you have to be on guard and, and watch out for uh, this greed because it's damaging. It's, it's, if you're on guard, you're protecting yourself from this hurt. When those riches were lost through bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. And as he came naked from his mother's womb, so will he return as he came. Isn't that amazing? I saw all four of my children born, and all four were naked. That's right. I'm pretty sure I was born the same way. I didn't keep a diary or anything. But All right. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. So this also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? So, anyway, here's two chapters, back-to-back chapters. Here's a whole book of Solomon out of fellowship, communicating the vanity of it all. I'm going to close here with 1 Timothy 6. We were here fairly recently in our Timothy series. If you want to provide accurate doctrinal instruction to church-age believers that are in a season of uh, prosperity... And think about that between now and then, because this rich guy, this parable guy with the good crop, uh, we're going to see next week that that good crop uh, was was just a single year. It was just a bumper crop, as it were, a a good year. And uh, are you going to base everything on one good year, on the best year kind of thing? Anyway, we'll talk about that next, next week, but... Here's the instructions. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to, as if, you know, you're the smart guy that brought this all about. Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Easy come, easy go. God provides, God removes. 
God's the source of these blessings. If you fail to acknowledge that and fail to appreciate that and fail to and uh, give him the glory for the great things he has done, then uh, you know prepare for the discipline of having him take those things away. And the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Are you going to fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches or the one who gives the riches? So fix their hope on God who richly supplies us with all things. Notice now, to enjoy. God provides... And it is our response to what He provides is our enjoyment, our capacity. Capacity to enjoy His provision. Whether it's a little or a lot or something in between, our capacity to enjoy His provision. And He can give you millions of dollars, billions of dollars, whatever. And if you don't have the capacity to enjoy that, you're failing the test. He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. He didn't provide it so that you could hoard it. He provided it as a part of equipping you to do the work He designed you to do with it. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation. If you make use of what He gives you for the reason He gives it to you, you're laying up your treasures in heaven. See. Anyway, we went through all that in 1 Timothy 6. The idea that, uh, um, you know, the idea that God gives you a gift of pastor teacher and instead of using that gift, sharing, as it were, for the benefit of all the other believers in the church, you just become a, 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 a miser, a, a scrooge, and you hoard your gift and you go home and you only pastor yourself. Okay? Be the same thing with the gift of giving. Be the same thing with anything God provides and He expects you to utilize it for the benefit of the saints. All right. Well, those are the principles. We'll come back next week and actually address the parable under main point E. And we'll see the details of his bumper crop and how excited he got over a good year. Thank you, Father, for this day, for the truth of your word. Thank you for our time together. We thank you for this study. And Father, you've given it to us repeatedly, seems here lately. Uh, you've given it to us in First uh, Timothy. Uh, we've got principles of grace giving coming up again now in Second Corinthians. We have it here. Uh, time and time again, you're equipping us. And I thank you, Father, for equipping us. As uh, you're, you're giving us these uh, biblical principles for finances at the perfect time while this ministry is involved in a building program where... We could very easily get distracted and consumed by money or get misdirected or, or befuddled. So, Father, thank you for not allowing that to happen. Thank you for godly deacons. Thank you for men of integrity. Thank you for the wisdom you're supplying as we move forward in this building program. And I just rejoice that we can make each decision for the glory of Jesus Christ according to the principles of your word. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.